0: Chapter 20, Nobody Wants the North Side. The lodge sat on the corner of 7th and Vine Street, near downtown. On most days, residents gathered near the entrance, talking, smoking, and running after their children. That was where Crystal had been spending most of her time since the final days of February. On Crystal's eviction court papers, Sharina had checked the box next to the landlord desires the premises for the following reasons. Writing in, causing substantial disturbances with upper and lower tenants with police involvement. Also, unauthorized subleasing to an evicted tenant. Crystal was confused by the whole process. Could Sharina call Arlene unauthorized when she knew about their arrangement from the start? She packed her things into two clear garbage bags and left without going to court, wrongly assuming that doing so would keep her name clean. Crystal hated the food at the lodge, and some of the maintenance men propositioned the residents for sex, offering fresh sheets, snacks, and extra shampoo. But she liked her room. It was warm, clean, and free. Said Crystal, I ain't paying no $5.50 and feel like I'm getting nothing. Plus, she was on the hunt for a new friend, and the lodge was a great place to find one. It collected under a single roof dozens of people who had found themselves in especially desperate situations, who were all, quote, going through a thing, end quote, as shelter residents put it. People were attracted to Crystal. She was gregarious, funny, with an enduring habit of slapping her hands together and laughing at herself. She would saunter out the doors of the lodge, singing gospel, her hands raised in praise. Crystal had some suitors. But what she wanted most of all from her new friends and what she wanted from Arlene was a mother figure. She found one in Vanetta. Vanetta Evans had been staying at the lodge since January. At 20, she was not much older than Crystal, but she'd grown up fast. Vanetta had her first child, Kendall Jr., when she was 16, then a daughter, Temby, the next year, and a third the year after that, a boy named Bobo. You might say Vanetta was raised in the Robert Taylor homes, Chicago's infamous public housing towers. Or you might say that her mentally challenged mother, whom Vanetta and her siblings unaffectionately called Shortcake, raised her in almost every homeless shelter in Illinois and Wisconsin. Crystal liked the way Vanetta carried herself. She was always put together, with her hair pulled back tight in a small ponytail. She even wore her cell phone on a belt holder like a landlord. Vanetta's dark brown skin matched crystals, and she had a smoky lounge singer voice that she almost never raised at her kids. She could snap them in line by giving them a look, giving them the look. When Kendall Jr. acted up, Vanetta pretended to call Big Kendall, his father, on the phone. The boy knew she was faking, but would calm down anyway. When Bobo had seizures, she rushed him to the hospital. The two women began swapping cigarettes, each keeping mental note of the number of Newports given and received. Soon they upped the ante, taking incremental but expedited steps towards establishing a relationship of reciprocity. They exchanged snacks, then small bills, then meals purchased at fast food restaurants. Through passing references, they began learning about the other's resources. Vanetta received $673 a month from welfare and $380 in food stamps. As well as their character and temperament. Crystal and Vanetta began calling each other sister. After a week, they decided to look for housing together. Roommates inside the homeless shelters would become roommates outside of it. Crystal didn't think she needed to worry about Vanetta's upcoming sentence hearing. Prayer is a powerful thing, she said. Vanetta thought her chances of avoiding prison were decent, even without Jesus. It was her first offense. The trouble had started when Old Country Buffet slashed Vanetta's hours. Instead of working five days a week, she would now only work one. Her manager blamed the recession. After that, Vanetta couldn't pay her electricity bill. We Energies threatened disconnection unless she paid $705. There was no way she could pay that and the rent. But she worried that child protective services would take her kids away if her lights and gas were shut off. The thought of losing her children made Veneta sick to her stomach. Then she fell behind in rent and received an eviction notice. She felt helpless and terrified. Her friend who had also received the pink papers felt the same way. One day, with Vanetta's boyfriend, the two women sat in a van and watched another pair of women walk into a blockbuster carrying purses. By the way, a blockbuster was a place where you used to rent videos. If You didn't know that. Someone suggested robbing the women and splitting the money. Then all of a sudden, that's what they were doing. Vanetta's boyfriend unloaded his gun and handed it to her friend. The friend ran from the van and pointed the pistol at the women. Vanetta followed, collecting their purses. Cops picked them up a few hours later. In her confession, Vanetta had said, I was desperate to pay my bills, and I was nervous and scared and did not want to see my kids in the dark or out on the street. When she turned 18, Vanetta had put her name on the list for public housing. Becoming a convicted felon meant that her chances of ever being approved were almost zero. At her plea hearing, the judge told Vanetta that she could be subject to a fine of up to $100,000, 40 years of imprisonment, or both. Vanetta tried not to think about that. After her hearing, she was fired and then evicted, which is when she took her kids to the lodge. Crystal and Vanetta agreed to look for an apartment exclusively on the Hispanics' outside. When they felt God smiling on them, they even looked in white neighborhoods. They refused to consider the north side. It would be nice to get away from these black motherfuckers, Crystal said. They began making daily bus trips to the south side and calling on rent signs. Even in the age of online apartment listing sites, the humble rent signs remained a visible and effective beacon, especially in minority neighborhoods. Only 15% of black renters looking for housing relied on the internet. By not consulting print or online listings, Crystal and Veneta constricted their options to what they could see with their own eyes, often from a foggy bus window. The new friends looked at a small two bedroom unit but turned down an application when they learned the landlord didn't allow smoking. They hung up when a landlord answered in Spanish. You want 650 for a two bedroom? You're out of your mind. Crystal told one landlord. After calling a dozen apartments, Vanetta suggested they try affordable rentals. It's a company. You wouldn't know it from its tiny storefront office on National Avenue, one of the south sides of Maine motorways, but affordable rental, rentals was a giant in Milwaukee's low-income rental market. The company owned over 300 rental units and managed almost 500 more. Don't get ghetto in there. Benetta reminded Crystal as they walked toward the door. Inside, they put a, down a deposit, and the receptionist behind thick glass handed them a master key so they could inspect the units on their own. The places were small but clean, except for the one with diapers and tires in the backyard. The gem of the bunch was a two-bedroom apartment with a tub, renting for $445. Benetta wanted a tub so her kids could take baths. A woman rushed back and filled out an application. The women rushed back, not a woman, and filled out an application. A paper taped to the wall announced affordable rentals screening criteria. Here's what the paper said. We reject applicants for the following reasons. First time tenants without a co-signer. Any evictions within the last three years felony drug or violent crime convictions within the last seven years, misdemeanor drug or disorderly conduct crime charges within the last three years, non-verifiable income or insufficient income, non-verifiable rental history or any bad reference from a previous landlord. Crystal and Vanetta paid no mind to the sign. On their rental application, Vanetta listed her twin brother as a reference. Crystal listed her spiritual mom As she waited to hear back from affordable rentals, Vanetta wondered if they needed to look at units priced over their $550 limit. But she didn't want to go higher, mainly because she didn't know if Crystal was able to hold on to her money. At the lodge, Vanetta had watched Crystal spend down her check on clothes, fast food, and even slot machines at the casino. Girl, I'm going to punch you in the mouth, Vanetta would vent. A healthy chunk of Crystal's money also went into offering baskets the first Sunday of every month. I'm sowing seeds, Crystal said as the women sat down at George Webb. It was Crystal's treat. She had won $450 at Potawatomi Casino the night before, using a $40 birthday present from her foster care agency to play the slots. The waitress brought Crystal the cup of hot water she requested. She slid her silverware in the cup of tea to clean it or in the cup to clean it. Remember how I explained to you last time? If you're a farmer and you plant your seeds for your corn and your vegetables and all that, and you water and take care of it, your crop's going to come. That's how I look at it when I sow seeds in the church. I need something from God, so I sow a seed. I need a house. I need a financial breakthrough. I need healing and stuff. I need to be made whole. That's how I'm going to put it. Vanetta held her chilled look. That's why I don't creep with your church, because they don't have nothing to offer you. But they got a lot to say, and I don't like that. And then you go to them and tell them the situation that's going on, and it's like they don't care. Crystal looked at her food. I don't know, she said. It's, I'm just waiting to move. She tried to change the subject. That cheesecake banging. But Vanetta was not through. Don't fall up your face, she said. Motherfucker, smile in your face when you tithe. Nuh-uh, Crystal shook her head. You be throwing all that money in a basket? Don't say nuh-uh, because I seen it when I went Sunday. Vanetta knew how much Crystal's church meant to her. She had heard Crystal run on about Minister Barber and the bishops and the Holy Ghost and all that. She had watched Crystal take herself to church on Sundays, Tuesdays, Fridays, and sometimes Saturdays for special services. If the congregation at Matt... Mount Calvary, Pentecostal, wasn't Crystal's family. Who was? But Crystal's church was Vanetta's biggest competition. Every seed Crystal sowed in the offering basket left Vanetta with less money for their budding household. Vanetta didn't know if what she'd said had penetrated until later that day, when she came upon Crystal crying into her phone and praying in tongues. Ashanta, Ashanta. When late afternoon arrived, Vanetta had to be back for her GED class. Don't go, said Crystal. I can't miss. I want that diploma, Vanetta answered. You can't miss? Only in a real emergency. Bitch, you're looking for housing. This is a real emergency. Vanetta smiled and left. Crystal was supposed to continue the housing search, but she decided to stop by her church instead. Mount Calvary Pentecostal Church was on 60th and National, on the far southwest side of the city, but still accessible by bus. It was a handsome brick building with stained glass windows and rain gutters painted fire engine red. It was Monday night, so the church's food pantry was open. Crystal picked up a bag of groceries and accepted a hot dog from her minister. Bishop Dixon teased Crystal about texting during the service and Crystal countered by asking the old man if his teeth ever fell out when he was giving the blessing. She told Sister Italia to bring her dog to church. Why not? Maybe she can get the word too. They laughed. Elder Johnson was there in a preachy mood. If we really got Jesus in our souls, he said, I'm supposed to be able to feel your pain, and you're supposed to be able to feel my pain. Elder Johnson didn't feel Crystal's pain. It wasn't that he didn't care. Like Vanetta thought, it was that he didn't know. Elder Johnson, Bishop Dixon, Sister Italia, none of them knew Crystal was staying at the lodge. Only Minister Barber knew. Crystal didn't want members of the church to reduce her, to see her as an object of pity, a member of the poor and the orphaned. She wanted to be seen as Sister Crystal, part of the body, beloved. Crystal received a bag of food once in a while, and congregants had opened their homes to her for a night or two. But her church was in no way equipped to meet Crystal's high-piled needs. What her church could offer was the peace. What's your favorite verse, sister? Elder Johnson asked. He had seen Crystal lift one of the nearby Bibles. Don't be trying to put me on the spot, she smiled. Then she said, though he slay me, he will yet will I trust him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. A verse from the Bible. Crystal and Vanetta kept looking for a place to live. Sometimes Vanetta took her kids with her. Sometimes she took them to the daycare to stay with her older sister, Ebony. Vanetta had them with her when she and Crystal visited their 32nd apartment on 15th Street in Madison. The landlord stepped out of his sob and opened the door to a small bedroom unit, two bedroom unit. The showing was scheduled in the evening because the landlord had a government day job in Madison. He was a well-fed Puerto Rican man in pleated slacks and a dress shirt. The place was small, dumpy, and without a bathtub. After a walkthrough, Vanetta asked the landlord if he had any other units with tubs. He said he did and began describing another apartment. It was bigger and somewhat nicer than the place he was showing Veneta and Crystal, but the rent was the same. Then, suddenly, as if forgetting something, the man stopped himself. His hand went for his pocket and he answered his cell phone. It was obvious to Vanetta and Crystal that no one had called, but he pretended to have a conversation. Hanging up, the landlord said it had been his partner on the other line, and that he had just rented out the bigger and nicer unit. The women stood outside and watched the sob pull away. Crystal reached for her old MP three player and put in headphones. Vanetta was shaking. I'm so angry, she whispered. Get it together. You have to heal your heart, Crystal sang, eyes closed, swaying back and forth. He just like, oh, they black. They trash the place anyways. Vanetta wiped a tear away with a quick swipe and sucked in her quivering bottom lip. Her kids looked at her confused. Get it together. You can fly, fly, Crystal lifted her voice. Most Milwaukeeans believed their city was racially segregated because people preferred it that way. But the ghetto had always been more of a product of social design than desire. It was never a byproduct of the modern city, a sad accident of industrialization and urbanization, something no one benefited from nor intended. The ghetto had always been a main feature of landed capital, a prime moneymaker for those who saw ripe opportunity in land scarcity, housing dilapidation, and racial segregation. Maybe it began in the late 15th century, the weaponry of war to blame. With the invention of the iron cannonball, cities could no longer rely on moats and modest ramparts to fend off an attack. Complicated systems of defense had to be constructed and cities had to grow vertically behind walls. Old Geneva and parents saw Paris saw tenement Tenements climbed six stories. Edinburgh boasted of tenements twice as high. While agrarian families, those are families that are in agriculture, were driven from the land to increasingly congested cities, the competition for space drove up land values and rents. Urban landlords quickly realized that piles of money could be made by creating slums. Maximum profits came, not from providing first-class accommodation for those who could well afford them, but from crowded slum accommodations for those whose pennies were scarcer than the rich man's pounds. Beginning in the 16th century, slum housing would be reserved not only for outcasts, beggars, and thieves, but for a large segment of the population. During its rapid period of urbanization, America imported this model, Colonial proprietors adopted the institution and laws of England's landed gentry, including the doctrine of absolute liability for rent, which held tenants unequivocally responsible for payments, even if even in the event of fire or flood. Throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, America's poor lived in cellars, attics, cattle sheds and windowless rooms that held held multiple families. Some slums were cut off from basic municipal services and local wells, so families begged for water in other parts of town. Rents continued to rise as living conditions deteriorated. Soon, many families could not afford their housing. When this happened, landlords could summon the privilege of distress, which entitled them to seize and sell tenants property to recover lost profit, a practice that persisted well until the 20th century. Racial oppression enabled land exploitation on a massive scale. During slavery, black slaves pulled profit from the dirt, but had no claim to the land. After the Civil War, freed slaves saw in land ownership the possibility of true liberation. But during Reconstruction, wealthy whites maintained a virtual monopoly on the soil as lands seized from or abandoned by Confederates were restored to origin- the original owners. Returning to plantations as sharecroppers, Black families descended into a cycle of subsist- subsistence farming and debt, while white planters continued to grow rich. The slave shacks stood, and so did the plantation mansions. In the early decades of the 20th century, African-American families seeking freedom and good jobs participated in the Great Migration, moving en masse from rural South cities like Chicago, Philadelphia, by moving to cities like Chicago, Philadelphia, and Milwaukee. When they arrived in those cities, they were crowded into urban ghettos, and the vast majority depended on landlords for housing. Ghetto landlords had a segregated and a captive tenant base and had nothing to gain by improving their run-down houses. They began dividing their properties into small kitchenette units, throwing up so many plywood walls their apartments resembled rabbit warrens. Many houses lacked heating and complete plumbing, so Black families cooked and ate in winter coats and relieved themselves in outhouses or homemade toilets. They came to know well the sound of the tuberculosis cough. In 1930, the death rate from Milwaukee's Blacks was nearly 60% higher than the city-wide rate, due in large part to poor housing conditions. For the first time in the history of America, New Deal policies made home ownership a real possibility to white families. But Black families were denied these benefits when the federal government deemed their neighborhoods too risky for insured mortgages, and officials loyal to Jim Crow blocked Black veterans' From using GI mortgages. Over three centuries of systematic dispossession from the land created a semi permanent Black rental class and an artificially high demand for inner city apartments. In the 1950s, white real estate brokers developed an advanced technique of exploitation, one that targeted Black families shut out from nervous white homeowners in transitioning neighborhoods private investors would sell these houses on contract to black families for double or triple their assessed value black buyers had come up had to come up with sizable down payments often upwards of 25% of the property's inflated value once they moved in black families had all the responsibilities of home ownership without any of the rights when families missed payments which many did after monthly installments were increased, or necessary housing upkeep set them back, they could be evicted as their homes were foreclosed and down payments pocketed. The profits were staggering. In 1966, a Chicago landlord told the court that on a single property, he had made $42,000 in rent, but paid only 2,400 in maintenance. When accused of making excessive profits, The landlord simply replied, that's why I bought the building. The 1968 Civil Rights Act made housing discrimination illegal, but subtler forms prevailed. Crystal and Veneta wanted to leave the ghetto, but landlords like the one on 15th Street turned them away. Other landlords and property management companies, like affordable rentals, tried to avoid discriminating by setting clear criteria and holding a all applicants to the same standards. But equal treatment in an unequal society could still foster inequality because black men were disproportionately incarcerated and black women disproportionately evicted. Uniformly denying housing to applicants with recent criminal or eviction records still had an inconsumerate impact on African-Americans. When Crystal and Veneta heard back from affordable rentals, they learned their application had been rejected on account of their arrest and eviction history. Eviction itself often explained why some families lived on safe streets and others on dangerous ones, why some children attended good schools and others failing ones. The trauma of being forced from your home, the blemish of of an eviction record, and the taxing rush to locate a new place to live eviction renters into more depressed and dangerous areas of the city. This reality had not yet set in Fort Veneta and Crystal. They were just coming out of the first, fresh-feeling phase of house hunting. It was only after they had tried for over 50 apartments that Crystal and Veneta began reluctantly scouting the inner city. The new friends were circling back to the ghetto, but not fully committing to it. Crystal had been working to keep her emotions in check. It was why she chose to stop by the church Monday night instead of looking for housing. It was why she grabbed her music and sang after the incident with the landlord on on 15th Street. This is too much, too much stress, but I'm not going to make myself sick, she said. When Crystal finally did blow up, it was at one of the shelter's maintenance men over clean linens he refused to supply She was already in trouble for sleeping through a mandatory job training. Crystal blamed her sleep apnea. After the altercation with the maintenance man, Crystal was told to be out by breakfast the next morning. Crystal spent the following day on the phone trying to find someone who would open their doors to her. With no luck and night coming on, she sighed and called Minister Barber, who found an older couple in the congregation who agreed to help. Crystal spent the night in their lazy boy recliner. The following evening, after Bible study at Mount Calvary, Crystal returned to the elderly couple's house. Rain was falling onto onto dark, empty streets. It was that icy, bitter rain that comes when winter first begins to thaw into spring. Crystal knocked, and the husband cracked the door without unlatching the chain. The house was on 14th and Burley. In one of the most crime-ridden areas of the city, seeing Crystal, the man kept kept the chain taut, handed over a small bag of crystal thing, Crystal's things, and shut the door. Crystal figured it wasn't because she didn't hit their hand. But she didn't have any money to give, having lent one of her cousin's four hundred dollars, mostly from her casino winnings. Her cousin needed rent money. When Vanetta heard about that, she said, Crystal, if I was there, I would have smacked the mess out of you. You don't have a place to stay yourself. I don't care if they're family or not. You've been homeless for a grip, and you need to you need a roof over your head. Sometimes Crystal couldn't help herself. Like the time she and Vanetta were eating lunch at McDonald's and a boy walked in. He was maybe nine or ten in dirty clothes and with unkept hair. One side of his face was swollen. The boy didn't approach the counter. Instead, he wandered slowly through the tables, looking for scraps. Crystal and Vanetta noticed him. What you got? Crystal asked, rifling through her pockets. The women pooled what they had to buy the boy dinner. Staring up at the menu, Crystal wrapped her arm around the boy like she was his big sister. She made sure he was okay, handed him the food, and sent him away with a hug. Reminds me of when we was kids, Vanetta said, shaken. Crystal watched the boy dash across the street. I wish I had me a house. I would take him in. On Burleigh Street, the wind pushed the wind pushed rain fell sideways in sheets. In the yellow beam of the street light, it looked like the unending school of silvery fish darting through the light before disappearing into the surrounding pool of darkness. Crystal considered her phone. It was almost eleven o'clock at night. She dialed a number. Her cousin, who owed her didn't pick up. She dialed the number. Her foster care mother said her house was full. She dialed the number. She dialed and dialed and dialed and dialed.